1: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. That's where we are in our series, The Way of Wisdom, Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 27 through 32 today. Here's the key concept this morning. It is wise to be a good neighbor. Today we're talking about wisdom in the neighborhood. And this is what some people love about the Proverbs is how practical they are, how down-to-earth and really everyday life they they show us how to live. It's wise to be a good neighbor is what we are talking about today and how we live in our neighborhoods. Neighborhoods have changed in the span of my life. I remember spending a lot of time uh, as a young boy in my grandparents' home in New Jersey... In that street, there was a, it was a tree-lined street filled with homes built in the early 1900s, and each of those homes featured a large screened-in front porch. And each of those families in that neighborhood, and in the neighborhood where my folks' house was as well, spent a lot of time on those front porches. In the evening, they would be out there, and we would see our neighbors walking by. We, we knew our neighbors we could tell when a family from far, a family member from far away was visiting. We knew we understood when somebody down the street maybe was having a fight. We recognized a strange car it was coming down the road it didn't belong. Neighbors called out to one another as they walked by. Now, little by little over time somehow things have changed. I remember the day when our next-door neighbor installed a back deck. My grandmother was scandalized. <laughs> a back deck. She took it as a personal insult. A porch in the back? What, are they going to sit and just talk to themselves? You know, they don't want people to know what they're doing. There must be something sinister. There must be something bad going on. At least it wasn't neighborly in her mind. Neighbors got to know each other. Neighbors were involved with each other. Well, Proverbs talks about how we treat our neighbors, reminds us that it's wise to be a good neighbor. And it does speak to us today because I have to ask myself and you, do you know your neighbors? Times have changed and houses have changed and habits have changed. But the point of the scripture is that Christians are to be positive influences in their community. And it starts with the people who live right around you. So let's read a little bit about how to be a good neighbor. Start in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow when you have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. Solomon reminds us that what we believe ought to make a difference in the way that we live to the in the people, with the people who are closest to us, our families and our neighbors. The word we translate neighbor there actually has a range of meanings. It can mean friend, it can mean anyone that we have a a relationship with. And the point is that life is filled with opportunities to do good. Do not withhold good. I read a story recently about a man who fell into a pit. And a kind-hearted person walked by and said, Oh, I feel for you down in that pit, but did nothing to help him out. A smart person walked by and said, you know, it's logical that eventually somebody would fall in this pit, but didn't help him out. The legalist scoffed and said, only bad people fall into pits. The newspaper reporter wanted an exclusive story on the pit. The tax assessor wondered if the fees had been paid on the pit. The fire and brimstone preacher declared, you must deserve the pit. The positive thinker said, don't worry, the pit is all in your mind. Believe in yourself and you'll get out of the pit. The critical man said, you call this a pit? You should see my pit. (laughs) Finally, a neighbor came by and climbed into the pit and said, you know, I've been here before. Let's get out together. Be that neighbor. Don't withhold good when you can give it. Part of that is a willingness to share, a willingness to, to give what we have. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow when you have it with you. The Apostle John picks up that same theme in 1 John 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. Here's the principles of being a good neighbor. Help all you can. But do you notice there's some subtleties in verse 27? Do not withhold good from those who deserve it, when it is in your power to act. Do you notice from those, for those who deserve it? That's the NIV's rendering. Does it mean that some people won't deserve it? Does it mean that we're meant to make a determination on who deserves it and who doesn't? And if so, how do we make that judgment? What's the criteria? How do we test their worthiness? Interestingly enough, Jesus actually spends some time talking about being a neighbor. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the good Samaritan, where the Samaritan is the one who sees the man on the side of the road and bandages him up and takes care of him as others walk by, Jesus is actually telling that story in response to a question, the question from the expert in the law, and the question is, who is my neighbor? Basically what he's asking is, who do I have to be nice to? How far does that go? And he tells the story about this Samaritan, shockingly, the Samaritan who they looked down on was the person who helped out. And then Jesus turns the table on that expert of the law and asks him this question. Verse 36, who acted like a neighbor? And the answer is the one who has shown him mercy. The impression is that not only do we need to draw a wide circle as we determine who our neighbor is, we need to draw that circle wide in terms of who we act neighborly toward. But when you come to this verse, in verse 27, even though the circle should be wide, it seems that Solomon is saying it's not universal to those who deserve it. The implication is there will be some who do not. So the question is, Who does not? And that answer actually is found in the sweep of the book of Proverbs. Because throughout the book of Proverbs, there are two examples of individuals who do not, for reasons we'll explain in a moment. And those individuals are labeled the sluggard and the leech. The sluggard is the lazy person who will not work though they can to meet their obligations and needs. Proverbs 6, 9 says this, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Paul refers to the same kind of person in 2 Thessalonians. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. The sluggard is that sinfully lazy person. Just takes advantage. The other person is the leech. It's a little different. Proverbs 30, 15, The leech has two daughters, give and give. It could be translated this way. The leech has two daughters who are always saying give and give. Either way, you never give enough to the leech. They're always taking, always sucking more out of the system. The sluggard is sinfully lazy. The leech is sinfully a compulsive taker who will never be satisfied. So we help where we can, but there are some situations Where Solomon advises us wisely that you ought not to help. In those situations where you ought not to help is when your help will end up hurting. Here, your help will be confirming these bad behaviors. See, Solomon is wise enough to know that not all needs are created equal. We need to have a strategy as giving persons how we can give in a way that really truly helps. This is not to get out of helping. This is not to make excuses. It's some, it's just simply to be strategic. And in our culture today, there are people who are coming around to this realization trying to figure out the best way to confront the issues of a society that has many, many needs. And smart people who write books on this stuff say that we need to determine what requires an immediate relief or a short-term rehabilitation or a long-term development. In fact, those are the three categories that the writers describe, relief is when the need is urgent. Temporary provision must be provided. The Good Samaritan bandaging up that man on the side of the road literally stop the bleeding. That's relief. It must be a part of our strategy. But secondly, rehabilitation. That's when the need is chronic, that's helping to see that the person doesn't come into that situation of urgent need again. Maybe it's teaching them new ways of living in that story. Maybe it's saying to, the, Samarit- uh, to, the, to the, the man who was beaten up, you know, don't go down that stretch of road that's so dangerous all by yourself. And then there's development, the long-term plan of training the needy and establishing systems around those for whom we are concerned that will lift them up so the needs don't recur. If we only use relief and never get to rehabilitation or development, our help long-term may be hurting, and we should think that through. So, right now, in the state of California, we're in a crisis with the homelessness around us, right? We need all three of those efforts. We need relief for those emergency needs. We need rehabilitation, and we need development of systems that will Long-term, solve the problem. Help all you can, Solomon is saying, but make sure in your helping, you're not hurting more. But there's still another subtlety in this verse, verse 27. It says, when it is in your power to act. The Bible is such a realistic book. The implication is it's not always in your power. Why? You are not all-powerful, and you are to keep your priorities in mind. No use this as an excuse not to help, but use this as a way to help wisely. God places priorities in all of our lives. First circle of priorities your family, those who are nearest and dearest to you. If you're known to be a person of great charity and involvement with the needy, but you can't provide for your family, your priorities are out of whack. So it's a little complex. And with great depth that Solomon says, do not withhold good. But there's a second portion of this. In terms of being a good neighbor, number one, don't withhold good with these wise provisions in mind. But secondly, don't be hurtful either. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when you have it with you. 29, do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. 30, do not accuse a man for no reason. In verse 28, the idea there is don't string people along. Don't make it seem like you want to help when you really don't want to help. So you pause and you delay, hoping that somebody else will step up and meet the need and you won't have to be bothered. Don't do that. Meet the need when you can. James picks up the idea in James four seventeen. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it Sins. In chapter 2, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and fed, but does nothing about his physical need. What good is it? There's the urgent need. Help all you can. Help when you can. And be a trustworthy neighbor. Verse 29, Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. The, the idea is your neighbor trusts you. Don't take advantage of that trust. In a wider community setting, it means don't take advantage in business, don't sell your neighbor stuff they don't need. Don't sell them inferior products that you know will break. Don't jack up the prices to take advantage of need. Closer to home, if you borrow a tool, don't conveniently forget to return it. Or don't return it broken. If you borrow a car, return it with more gas in it than when you got it. Don't take advantage. And then don't pick a fight. Don't accuse a man for no reason. It's not just physical violence in view. It's gossip, malicious speech. Don't be quick to believe the worst about a rumor that you hear. Gossip is a two-way street. Don't accuse. Don't listen to accusations. Don't nurture resentments, playing the tape of maybe innocent mistakes over and over again until in your mind it becomes reasons to do battle. They can't help the music that they like next door. It's not an attack on you. There's a modern day proverb. It says this There's less pain in biting your tongue than in losing a friend. The point is, it's wise to be the kind of person that doesn't turn every little thing into a big thing. You have to choose your battles fight wisely, if at all. If it's a worthy cause, you stand up, but simply some things are not worth it. And last, don't envy the gains of the wicked. Verse 31, do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man but takes the upright into his confidence. Here we see the negative side of any community in any neighborhood. Sometimes there are those people who are the mean, cranky neighbors, the opposite of all these positive qualities that we're looking for, the ones who bully their way to get what they want in the neighborhood and in the community. And it seems like somehow they get ahead. They they, they get what they want. In society, they exist, and it may appear that they advance, but they do not eventually and eternally prevail. This issue is struggled with in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 15, we meet a man named Asaph. Asaph was part of the team of musicians that led worship in King David's day. He was a musician and he was a poet. Twelve of the Psalms bear his name. He wrote 12 Psalms. And in one of them, Psalm 73, he struggles with this very issue. 73, verse 3 says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy. Our society entices us to envy. Every glossy magazine, every TV show that features the mansions of the rich and and encourages us to envy that. We're programmed to desire more, the more expensive car, the more expensive home, and to lift up those who gain those things, even not knowing exactly how they got that gain. Asaph saw the wicked prospering, and it caused him to waver. He was envying. One man tells the story of trying to eradicate a nest of stinging ants in his backyard. He was afraid that these stinging ants would, would sting his children as they played in their sandbox there he had he installed for them. So he put out these poison pellets that the ants would think were food, and they would take them back to their nest, and, and he would eradicate the stinging ants in so doing. He said, I, and I watched the process, and, and what I saw was that actually was working, but another group of ants came over and started taking those pellets as well, thinking that they were food. And all the while, as they were taking what the others had, they didn't realize that they were poisoning themselves. Envy is like that. That's what envy will do. Here's envy's logic. Asaph again, verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Why am I so silly as to do what is right and be left behind? Purity seems silly once you're caught up in envy. It's silly for a dating couple to pay rent on two places instead of living together and saving the money. It seems silly not to cheat the customer when you can get away with it after all, it's about the money. It seems silly not to pad the expense account. Nobody will ever know. And Asaph had to work through this, and thankfully he did. Here's towards the end of the psalm. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Asaph had to work through it. And sometimes the way of wisdom is to keep your mouth shut until your mind clears. That's what Asaph had to do. He listened to God. He participated in worship. He got centered on the Lord. He turned his attention away from the envy to the things of God. And he was able to rejoice in what he had in the Lord himself. Back to our our proverb. Do not envy a violent man. Do not choose any of his ways. For the Lord detests a perverse man but takes the upright into his confidence. Those people who seem to be getting ahead are on slippery ground. They're never satisfied, always fighting their way to the top. And when they get to the top, the question is always, is this all there is? It's always the same. Don't envy that. Don't go after that, for you're a follower of Jesus. Verse 32, the Lord detests the perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. We live in a culture that is obsessed with networking getting the right relationships, meeting the right people, to get the right conversations, to open the right doors. Here Solomon tells us this is the ultimate network, the best relational circle you can probably possibly find. The Lord takes the upright into his confidence. That's what we want to be. Overall, the message is this, trust in the Lord and help all the people you can, when you can, whenever you can. And that will live, enable you to live a life in which Jesus looks good, and that's our goal. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you get such practical advice through your Word. And Lord, we can think of situations in real life, in our neighborhood, in the way that we live, the people we see, those folks that we drive by, and you're calling us to do better, to love more, and to trust you in it. Thank You, Lord, that as we say yes to that, You will shine through us. We want that to happen. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you need a, a prayer. There's a situation in life for which, in which you're struggling and the prayer would be appreciated in just a moment. We'll be leaving this place. but. Over here by the table, by the organ, we have prayer counselors who will wait and pray for you. You slip forward. But before we do that, let's all stand together and have a prayer. And before we pray the benediction, let's sing a song. Song goes like this. Maybe you know it, it's a short chorus. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. Now you've all learned it. Let's sing it again. In my life, Lord be glorified be glorified in my life lord be glorified today lord as we leave this place we pray that that continues as our prayer throughout the week that you are glorified in the things that we do the words that we say the actions that we take that we would demonstrate that we are loved by you and that your love would radiate through us to others. Bless us as we leave, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.